This, 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 this is K-U-T. K-U-T. K-U-T, Austin. Stop. This is KUT Weekend for the second weekend of January 2017. Thank you for listening. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5, the NPR station in Austin, Texas. Here's what we got for you this week. Austin's paramedics and EMTs try to negotiate for higher pay. It turns out we're below market and by a significant amount. How bees and bunnies at Brook Elementary have families sending their kids back across town to a neighborhood they can no longer afford. Especially a lot of the extracurricular stuff. I I really believe in, in what they call the whole child education. And who started decorating the trees on Loop 360? And sometimes at night, there's lights. I don't know how they get the lights out here, but some of these trees light up. Those stories and more in this edition of KUT Weekend. This is the ambulance. What is the address of your emergency? 1315 West 6th Street. And what's the phone number you're calling from? Um, I don't know the phone number, but there's a motorcyclist that just crashed in front of the restaurant. That's the sound of a 911 call to Austin Travis County EMS. Last month alone, they received an average of 400 calls a day. And as the population of Austin grows, so does the number of calls to 911. But those medics taking calls and the ones rushing to the scene in ambulances are without a labor contract for the first time in a while. KUT's Nadia Hamdan reports on what's going on. There are three departments in Austin that make up its public safety budget. Those are police, fire, and emergency medical services, or EMS. That last one is the focus here. For the first time in nearly 10 years, Austin Travis County EMS is without a contract with its workforce. I think that the police contract has kind of shadowed (laughs) what our concerns are. That's Tony Marquardt. He's president of the Austin Travis County EMS Association. He says the association had initially planned to extend their current contract, but after taking a closer look at the market, they changed their minds. Right now, the city spends 67 percent of its general fund on public safety, Only 4% of that goes to EMS, according to the labor union. The rest goes to the Austin Police and Fire Department, and city data shows that they are some of the highest paid in the region. It's a different story with EMS. It turns out we're below market and by a significant amount, and that is for the paramedic profession, which is a difficult profession, highly in demand. Um, We're below nationally, we're below regionally, and we're below locally. This prompted the association to push for a new five-year contract, which included a 2% raise each year for its employees. Marquardt argued that this would make Austin-Travis County EMS competitive, which could make it easier to afford to live in Austin and help the department fill about 75 open positions. After several months of negotiating with the city's interim labor relations team, in October, the city declared an impasse. They said the association was still asking for around $8 million more than what the city was willing to offer. So they chose not to resume negotiations. Now, EMS employees are working under civil service rules, which does allow workers to keep their current salaries, but offers no chance at a raise. Rebecca Weber is chair of Austin's Public Safety Commission. Why did the city's negotiating team walk away? I think it showed a lack of respect for the hard work that our paramedics do, and it showed a lack of valuing them. A spokesperson for the city's labor relations team declined to comment for this story, but in December, city council members decided that they'd like to see EMS back under contract. Here's council member Leslie Poole. 
on a personal note, I kind of feel bad for what has happened with EMS because when we took up all three of the first responder contracts, we did fire and then police and EMS came in at the end. And, and you know, when we got to you, there wasn't any money left. Council has asked the EMS Association to provide them a new report by mid-February. The goal is to get employees back on their old contract until the union picks up negotiations again this summer. Nadia Hamdan, KUT News. The contract between the Austin Police Association and the city expired a couple weeks ago. That contract defined pay and discipline for officers, but also oversight. How are police officers held accountable for their actions? KUT's Audrey McGlinchey tells us that without a contract, not much has changed. The office of the police monitor is still operating. You've reached the office of the police But you wouldn't know from calling their office. The police monitor fields complaints about officers from citizens. The rest of the position's powers, like the right to sit in on interviews with officers and internal affairs, were laid out in the previous police contract. But when a new contract came up for approval by council, it was rejected. Community activists came out in droves asking for more accountability, like the ability for the police monitor to investigate officers. Ranjana Nataranjan directs the Civil Rights clinic at UT Law. What makes civilian oversight effective? You need at least a couple of things. The first thing is you have to have investigative powers for the civilians who are doing the oversight. The rejection sent the contract back to be renegotiated. But more than a week later, the police union said, no, we're done negotiating for now. So where does that leave the police monitor? You've reached the office. Despite the the unanswered calls, it's apparently still intact. Yes, it's remarkable how exactly the same it looks like it will be. Kathy Mitchell works for the Texas Criminal Justice Coalition. On December 29th, Interim City Manager Elaine Hart sent a memo to the mayor and council members. In it, she wrote that the office of the police monitor would essentially continue as it had under contract. It will continue to have access to internal affairs investigations and it will continue to report information to the city manager through that process. But the future of a second oversight body is still unclear. My name is Dominic Gonzalez. I've been on the uh, Citizen Review Panel since 2007. Gonzalez is one of the longest-serving members of the city's Citizen Review Panel. While the Office of the Police Monitor is made up of city staff... With the Citizen Review Panel, you had volunteers from the public who were qualified and selected to review this information and in certain cases were able to um, make recommendations on discipline and critical incidents. In her memo, Hart said the city is, quote, currently evaluating the citizen review panel. The next step in any negotiation hinges on the newly named but yet to start city manager. The police union says it will start negotiations once the city manager is in place. Audrey McGlinchey, KUT News. The intersection of Trinity and East 7th in downtown Austin is statistically the most dangerous place to be a pedestrian in the state of Texas. KUT's Joseph Leahy has details about a traffic study by Hill Law Firm. The study looks at the four most recent years of collision data available to map the highest risk areas in Texas. It finds that Austin has four of the state's top 10 intersections for getting struck, injured, or killed by vehicles. They include West 4th and Lavaca downtown placing 4th, North Lamar Boulevard at Runberg coming in 7th, and I-35 at Runberg taking 10th place. 
Elsewhere, Hopkins and South Guadalupe in San Marcos was third most dangerous in the state for pedestrian collisions. The ranking is based on a composite score that accounts for crash volume and severity of injuries. Austin's Transportation Department drafted a pedestrian safety action plan last July, which is expected to be presented to the city council this year. Joseph Leahy, AUT News. Almost 50 women in Texas have filed to run for Congress this year. Organizations that recruit women to run for public office say that number could lead to historic election results in November. KUT's Ashley Lopez reports this is part of a nationwide wave of women seeking public office, many for the first time. Patsy Woods-Martin works at Annie's List. It's a group here in Texas that reaches out to women and helps them launch a political campaign. She says recruiting women to run for public office takes some work. In fact, it's why Annie's List exists. Well, what research shows is that women don't are not likely to self-nominate, right, just for, for running for office or are in many cases, leadership positions. Martin says usually it helps if someone turns to them and says, hey, you should run for office. And that's what her group does. And this year, Martin says their work got much easier. We've seen an incredible surge in interest um, over the course of this last year. No one was prepared for what happened almost a year ago with the women's marches around the state, particularly in Austin. And we were able to turn that energy into getting more women interested in running for office. She says in 2016, about 76 women ran for seats in the Texas legislature. This year, that number jumped to about 110. Martin says these women are running for a lot of reasons, but she says mostly they feel things have changed after Donald Trump was elected. What I am understanding is that women look up and they say, if a guy like Donald Trump, who has no experience and is uh, not not traditional, uh, to be kind, right, can get himself elected president of the United States, surely I can get myself elected to the state house. And Brian Leswing with Emily's List, which recruits women to run nationally, says he sees the same thing happening nationwide. It's an historic moment for for both Emily's List and for, frankly, women across the country. Leswing says between 2015 and 2016, about 920 women approached them about running for office. However, since Election Day 2016, more than 26,000 women have approached Emily's List um, about running for office. And that uh, number is... um, close to a thousand in Texas. And Patsy Woods Martin with Annie's List says even if women face tough odds in any of the seats they're currently vying for here in Texas, she hopes they treat this year as a learning experience so they can run again in the future. Ashley Lopez, KUT News. Governor Greg Abbott's campaign says he set a new record for how much cash on hand a statewide candidate has ever reported. More than $43 million in the bank. KUT senior editor Ben Philpott is here to shed some context on this. Thanks, Ben. Absolutely. So it looks like Abbott has a giant war chest. It's a whole lot of money, and it's 
not as much money as he will end up having. We still have several months before the November election. Uh, his campaign's done a really good and consistent job of putting out fundraising emails and calls uh, You know, throughout his time in office, pretty much picking up on any little either state or national thing that Democrats may have done and using it as a way to try and raise money for his own campaign. So, yeah, it's $43 million now. You know, I mean, we could see... 50 million by the time, you know, November rolls around in terms of money raised. There are two reasons why that's important. Number one, of course, he's going to have a dramatic fundraising edge over whoever his Democratic challenger is heading into the fall. Even if the Democrat could end up with 15 to 20 million dollars on hand, the governor, if needed, could easily double up whatever spending uh, happens there. Also, of course, Texas is a very expensive state. It's between, I think, one and a half to two million dollars a week to be able to be in all the major television markets here in Texas. So, you know, at the moment, we can assume that the governor is going to go into this race with some kind of a lead based on how past elections have gone. But if there were a reason for him to need to really ramp up his own campaigning, he can simply write that check because he's got plenty of money to do it. Now, the filing deadline for any Republicans who might want to try to challenge Abbott in the primaries has passed. But I'm wondering, how much of a deterrent effect do you think this giant fundraising machine had against a potential Republican primary challenger? It would be surprising if that didn't have some kind of an effect on who might have decided to challenge him. I mean, there's been a lot of speculation that Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick really wants to move up to that governor's role. And would he possibly challenge him in 2018? You know, the lieutenant governor himself has done a pretty good job of raising money, but his war chest is easily dwarfed and was easily dwarfed even six months ago when the filing deadline was still open. If Lieutenant Governor Patrick was considering it, that had to have been something that was weighed in uh, the pros and cons of making that run. Bottom line, it seems like Governor Abbott remains very popular among Republicans in Texas. Again, his campaign does a very effective job of making sure that they're using any little inch that maybe Democrats are giving them to raise money. Well, they're also not sitting back and waiting for this election to happen. They have for months and maybe even a few years now been hitting neighborhoods, block walking, knocking on doors, trying to raise support for votes for the governor, you know, for a long time, including places uh, in the Valley, places where Democrats tend to get a higher percentage of votes. Every weekend on my Twitter feed, I am seeing pictures of different groups in different parts of the state that have spent the weekend hitting the neighborhoods, knocking on doors and just saying, will you support Governor Abbott? Where is he drawing his political support from? I mean, what are the issues that are motivating people to say, Greg Abbott, you're standing for this and that's why I'm writing you a check for $100? You know, there's been a lot made of the possible civil war within the Republican Party, maybe the more Trump Tea Party type Republicans versus the, for lack of a better term, the country club Republicans, the business establishment Republicans. I think at the moment, Governor Abbott has continued to be able to bridge both of those. Not only is he somebody that talks about the Texas economic miracle and promotes all the different ways that businesses are continuing to move to the state and talks about things like low taxes and low regulation and and a great, robust business environment for the state. But he also then has supported things like the bathroom bill and school vouchers and the religious liberties bills that were passed into law this last legislative session, things that are more important for those Trump or Tea Party Republicans. So he's really worked hard to maintain support from both of those 
camps. And if you maintain support in both of those camps, then, yeah, you're going to get, you know, extremely high support amongst all Republicans, something that you don't see if you look at a Senator Ted Cruz or even a Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Their negatives tend to be a little higher when you look at polling data. And it's because uh, some people feel like they maybe skew a little bit more towards the Trump or Tea Party camp of the Republican Party. And so you lose a little support on the business side. KUT's Ben Philpa talking to us about Governor Greg Abbott's campaign, announcing that he will start 2018 with more than $43 million cash on hand. Ben, thanks for your time. Thank you. The increasing cost of living in Austin is not just a problem for people looking for a place to live. There are more families who can't afford living in the city limits, so schools are losing students. KUT's Claire McInerney reports that at one under-enrolled school in East Austin, families are leaving the neighborhood but traveling back there to keep their kids at the school. When most school principals think about their goals for the coming year, academics, or maybe budgets, usually top the list. For Principal Griselda Galindo Vargas at Brook Elementary, she hopes for something else. We're hoping that a new bee will, queen bee will come and find it, and then it'll bring another hive. That's right, Brook Elementary has beehives on campus. At this school in the Go Valley neighborhood, the kids help tend to the bees, with proper suits, of course, and harvest the honey. When Vargas started five years ago, she wanted her students to have unique experiences at Brook, which is why in addition to the bees... We have classic ballet, we have acoustic guitar, we have um, everything that we have to do with our main theme of sustainability after school. So we have the beekeeping, the gardening, the butterfly garden club. And a favorite among students, the animals. Yes, there's bees, and a slew of chickens, and a few rabbits for good measure. What's this bunny's name? Goldie. There's also dozens of garden beds throughout the school's property. Every class has a bed, and the students plant, tend to, and harvest their produce. On this day, teacher Francesca Hallbrook's fifth graders are harvesting kale. So we planted this earlier in the fall, and they've been coming out and watering it during their recess time and just checking on the produce. So we were ready to harvest, and it should be in the cafeteria maybe tomorrow or the next day. Fifth grader Elizabeth says she's never gardened before, but now... I love planting. What's your favorite thing you've learned having the garden? Um, That you have to take care of them, always pay attention to them. It's things like this that make parents love sending their kids to Brook. But despite her efforts, Principal Vargas says every year enrollment drops. Every year we lose 30 to 50 kiddos. The neighborhood is just too expensive now for most families. But regardless of where they live, some families can't imagine sending their kids anywhere else. Almost a fifth of the school students are transfers. Jellybean, I need four Pampers and three pull-ups for Sarah. Ruth Tovar has one of those students. With four kids, two school-aged, she's used to having hectic mornings getting everyone out the door. Ever since she and her husband moved their family last fall, mornings are starting earlier. Their friends don't get up to like 6.30, they're up by 5.30, you know. By 6.30, we're in the truck already. (laughs) Their new house is six miles south of the airport in the Dell Valley School District. But Tovar wanted to keep her third grader, Miriam, at Brook. So every morning, they get up at 5 to get ready for the day. Find some pins, Jody. They try to be out the door by 6.30. See, that's our alarm. Get out the door or you're going to be late. 
All four kids and Tovar pile into the car and start the 30 to 40 minute commute back to their old neighborhood. See, this traffic is extra bad. We don't usually slow down this much. Darn it. Tovar works near Brooke, which makes it easier to justify the commute every day. But she also sees how Miriam is thriving at the school. Especially a lot of the extracurricular stuff. I, I really believe in, in what they call the whole child education. Tovar tells me how proud she is to send her kids to Austin ISD schools. She graduated from Johnston High School, now Eastside Memorial. She plans to send her oldest son there. Her parents still live in the neighborhood where Brooke is, but she sees how fast it's changing. Our church is right there on East 5th, right off of 5th and Pleasant Valley. Everybody around them is selling. They can't afford to live there because of the taxes. When she drops off her 13-year-old at Keeling Middle School, that change is visible in the drop-off line. Look at that, Alexis on the east side. With enrollment at Brook continuing to drop, Tovar worries about the future of the school. It's financially difficult for the district to keep a school open if it's only half full. And it's clear new students aren't coming from the neighborhood. The district is considering consolidating schools in the area if enrollment doesn't improve. Tovar wants to see the district ramp up its marketing efforts for the school. It's your job. It's not my, I mean, I don't mind recruiting. I don't mind telling people about how great Brooke is. But why don't you dedicate some money? For today, at least, she's just worried about getting Miriam to class on time. Claire McInerney, KUT News. Every 10 years, the U.S. Census Bureau has the job of counting every person living in the country. Next census is scheduled for 2020. And as KUT Saida Hassan reports, the routine count is becoming the subject of a new political fight. The Department of Justice wants a new question to be added to the upcoming census. They want respondents to disclose whether or not they're U.S. citizens. The DOJ says that information is needed to better enforce the Voting Rights Act, specifically a section that bans racial discrimination. But the request has alarmed watchdog groups. Phil Sparks is co-director of the Census Project, a national coalition of groups that use census data. It's just a ridiculous political statement and doesn't hold water given the facts. Spark says introducing a citizenship question would throw a wrench into an already experimental process. The 2020 census will be the first one conducted largely online. Sparks notes that the Census Bureau already collects citizenship data through smaller surveys. The data from this 10-year count has major implications. It determines the number of seats each state gets in the U.S. House of Representatives. It's also used to determine how to distribute billions of dollars in federal funding. Should the census introduce a question on citizenship, Spark sees a potential for undercounting minority populations. Most census experts that I've talked to believe that it'll severely impact the participation of Latinos if it goes through and that the Latino population will be substantially undercounted because of this action if it's taken. But the potential for undercounting isn't new. An analysis of the 2010 census shows Latino residents were undercounted by about 775,000. The census has always been a scary proposition for people who are poor, who are in some form disenfranchised. 
Luis Zayas is the dean of UT Austin School of Social Work. He says for people who don't regularly interact with the government, disclosing personal information to a census worker can feel invasive. Zayas says a key challenge in Texas is accurately counting mixed-status families, those where some members, often young children, are legal U.S. residents, while their parents are not. Zaya says those children live in constant fear of incriminating their parents. Every knock on the door is a frightening moment. Every time that their mother or their father gets home late from work uh, unexpectedly is a, is a time of worry. What's going to happen to them? Every time a police car pulls alongside at a stoplight, they have to worry, will they notice us and stop us and take away my mommy and daddy? Zayas points to the recent repeal of DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. Hundreds of thousands of young undocumented immigrants disclose their information to the federal government. Now, many fear it may be used to deport them. Zayas thinks minority residents will still fill out census forms, but they'll likely leave out a lot of information, which could lead to gaps in the data. Saida Hassan, KUT News. Important opinion this week from the Texas Attorney General's office related to the secrecy of a search for Austin's city manager, which is the most powerful unelected position in city government. And this could have broader implications for government transparency in Texas. Austin American Statesman reporter Elizabeth Findell filed the public information request that led to the AG opinion. Thanks for talking to us, Elizabeth. Thank you very much for having me. Can you explain this uh, attorney general opinion to us? Yes, essentially, the uh, AG's office said that, in their opinion, Austin cannot withhold applications for the city manager or documents related to the city manager search under any of the exceptions they had tried to apply, the biggest of which was the city was claiming that it would hurt them competitively if other cities knew who might be applying for their city manager job. So while that may apply in some instances, this opinion states it does not apply in city manager searches. Right. Even if the information is kept by a private consultant, as it was in this case, the city still has to release that information. They can't block it by hiring a private company to collect applications on behalf of the city. But it was a particularly uh, exciting opinion for those of us who file a lot of public information requests and have seen a lot of different types of information blocked under this same competition standard that was set uh, a few years ago in the Texas Supreme Court case, Boeing v. Paxton, which essentially said that cities can withhold information if there's a competitive interest at stake. But this opinion clarified I don't know if other opinions have as well, that that standard really is only applied if there is a private party involved. The city can't claim that its own competitive interest, that it's at stake against other cities. Right. So this is more than just really about the search for city manager. It's important for people who care about open government and transparency in general. Yeah, we hope so. This ruling has been used by cities and uh, school districts and other governmental agencies all over Texas to withhold 
all kinds of information. Uh, you know, down in the valley, they didn't have to tell the public how much they paid Enrique Iglesias to sing at a parade with taxpayer money. There are school districts that haven't had to tell the public stipulations of their contracts to feed children. And that's all been because of this competition standard. So when the city started attempting to also apply it to a city manager search, it felt like an even slipperier slope than it already has been. This is an opinion written by Matthew Taylor, an assistant attorney general in the Open Records Division of the Texas Attorney General's Office. How binding is this on municipalities? Does the city of Austin now have to release the application information, for example? Well, you know, the state of Texas's process, one good thing about it is that it places the burden on the governmental body rather than on the requester for information. So at this point, the ball is back in Austin's court. And if they still don't want to comply with this opinion, then the next step would be they would have to sue the attorney general in response. The Austin City Council withheld information about city manager applicants on the advice of the executive search firm they hired, Russell Reynolds, which said doing so would result in a wider and better pool of applicants if people knew that by applying to this job, it would be kept anonymous. How much experience did Russell Reynolds have in conducting city manager searches? Russell Reynolds had never conducted a city manager search prior to this one. They had done perhaps one or two other public entity searches, including the search for a police chief in the city of Houston that nabbed Art Acevedo. But they have never done a city manager search before and have done very, very few public entity searches. Elizabeth Findell is a City Hall reporter for the Austin American Statesman. She was talking to us about the Texas Attorney General's Office issuing an opinion that city manager candidates cannot be held as a competitive secret. Elizabeth, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Every year before Christmas, Loop 360 becomes the site of a uniquely holiday tradition. I'm sure you've seen it. If you've driven down there, those junipers along the road get decorated into colorful Christmas trees. And now that Christmas is over, you may be wondering, who cleans all that up? KUT's Mose Bouchel set out to answer that question for this installment of our AT Explained project. I met our question asker, Gabriel Piedra, a week or two before Christmas. And uh, where are we? We're on 360 near uh, Spice Wood Spring Road in uh, Bull Creek. Surrounded by Christmas trees. I mean, you got different ones. I mean, here's the Spurs tree. <laughs> like the basketball team. Decked out in silver and black. Oh, man, here's one with dinosaurs on it. My kids would love this. Yeah, and sometimes at night, there's lights. I don't know how they get the lights out here, but some of these trees light up. It's really funny. Pietro said he first noticed the trees when he was in high school in the mid-90s. He and his family even joined in to decorate a couple. We just used to do it. I mean, we were teenage kids. We'll do it because we saw other people doing it. And I didn't know. I never meant to ask why they did it. I just thought it was something that us Austinites do. But now that he's older, he wonders how it got started. I mean, is this only unique to Austin? I mean, is this something that we just started, you know, and if we did start, if there's some organization or someone out there that actually know why they did it and why they just wanted to do it? Or is it just, you know, keep Austin weird? Sometimes the answers are right in front of your face. We were hoping this 
would be one of those times. Maybe some of the roadside vendors knew. How's it going, man? Jimmy Rhymes sells firewood by the highway. We have a listener who asked how this Christmas tree tradition started. I don't know if you've been working out here a while, if you see people come decorate it. Man, it's been like this for the last 10 years that I've been out here. And uh, so uh, when did it start? I don't know. I couldn't tell you. He says groups and families just show up and decorate. It's a mystery. Clearly, this would take a little more work. I looked for old newspaper articles for the first mention of the trees. Turns out it was pretty recent. The Austin American Statesman did a story about it in 2005. That story quoted a family. They said they saw other people decorating and decided to join in. I sent them a message on Facebook and kept digging. The early reports said the tradition started in secret. People would literally dress in black and decorate trees at night to avoid detection. There was a reason for that. Turns out the custom is not exactly legal. We just prefer people not do it. The problem is many people do. Chris Bishop is a spokesperson for the Texas Department of Transportation. He says if people must decorate... We simply ask, do a good job, attach the decorations firmly, and then when the season is over, come back and remove them. I thought that official prohibition might explain why I was getting nowhere. After some initial contact, the family from the newspaper article went silent. By the end of the year, all of my leads had dried up. Well, now it's after Christmas. Driving again down Highway 360, and these Christmas trees aren't looking so good. More of these decorations have started falling off. That's why we're going to a cleanup. Good morning, everybody. If you're just getting here, uh, make sure you sign in. If you do have Every January, the group Keep Austin Beautiful hosts a cleanup on the highway to keep the decorations from harming the environment, hurting wildlife, and becoming an eyesore. But for me, it was also maybe a last chance to figure out how all this got started. I'll give you guys two bags each. Cool. About 300 people lined up for garbage bags. Some wore reflective vests for the traffic. Here, I thought someone must have an answer. Do you have any idea how this started, the, the decorating the Christmas tree thing? I actually have no idea. Do you have any idea how the decorating the Christmas tree tradition got started? I have no idea. Do you know how this tradition of decorating the trees started? I have no idea. That was Christine Faithful, Danny Davis, and Philip Russell. Three of about a dozen people I asked. They all had the same response. Strangely, only one of them admitted to even decorating a tree. Mariah Gossett is with Keep Austin Beautiful. She's the woman you heard over the PA system earlier. I think people try to keep quiet that they decorated trees in this group. You know, these are definitely folks who I think see it as litter um, and want to make sure it comes down. So, She says last year, volunteers filled a U-Haul truck with decorations to send to Goodwill and 50 trash bags with stuff to send to the landfill. This is one of those really polarizing issues, you know, like every year we have the conversation in our office, you know, like you don't want to be that organization that's the Grinch, right, that says like, don't go decorate for the holidays. But this is kind of our way of saying like, well, if people are going to do it, we're going to make sure it comes down. And while she was talking, I got an idea. Do you think I could ask on the PA if anybody knows how the tradition started? Sure. Hey, everybody. Good morning. Thank you so much for coming out. We're trying to figure out if anybody knows how the tradition 
of decorating the Christmas trees on Highway 360 got started. Something I've been asked by a listener, I've been unable to answer that question. So if anybody has any idea, even a rumor, even the vague hint of a story, I would love to hear from you. I don't know if I can promise anonymity, but we can talk about it. All right, thank you all so much. Thank you, hopefully we can solve the mystery. So here's what happened. With hundreds of people there, no one came to me with an answer. But a guy named Rich De Palma, who was there for the cleanup, did repost the question on Facebook. According to replies on his post, the tradition did not start on Highway 360. It started with a single tree off Redbud Trail. From there, it spread to the highway in the early 2000s. That was interesting because it didn't jive with what our question asker said. If you remember, Gabriel Piedra said he saw the trees in the highway when he was in high school. Mid-90s, you know, that's when I first was aware of it. And that's when he and his friends started decorating. So what does it mean? Either he's misremembering or he was among the first people to start the tradition. He even said as much at our first meeting. But unbeknownst to me, I was part of something that just started that was kind of unique to Austin, you know? How was I supposed to know? <laughs> Which means that maybe you were part of the start of this thing that you didn't even know was the start, right? Yeah, exactly. And so maybe uh, if you're wondering who started it, you're one of the people. Yeah, somehow. <laughs> no, seriously, it's not the full answer, but maybe it's something close to it. And maybe it had been staring us in the face the whole time. Mose Bouchel, KT News. That is KUT Weekend for the second weekend of January 2017. Thank you so much for listening. This commercial-free podcast is brought to you by the people who are members of KUT. They support local nonprofit journalism, and you are always welcome to become a member at KUT.org. You can subscribe to this podcast at weekend.kut.org or in iTunes, and you can email me, Nathan, at KUT.org if you have any questions or comments. Our theme music is by REC. Have a great day. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5 and KUT.org. Thank you.